So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22, the scripture text that was read this morning is our instruction this morning, and I'm hope, hoping that the Lord will lead us through these past, this passage so that we can see the importance of a personal encounter with God ourselves, and that we'd not be disquieted, that we would be um, impatient in some degrees with a lack of awareness of our Heavenly Father in our own lives as believers. We are now shifting significantly in the storyline. To this point, we have been looking at uh, Abraham, we've looked at Isaac, and now we're shifting to Jacob. We're really not going to hear much more about Isaac and Rebekah. And so, we have Jacob on his way from Beersheba to Haran. He's going to be leaving the fire, or the, the frying pan and entering the fire. He's going to be leaving a, a lion, if you will, and going towards a massive spider. His uncle, uh, Laban, is a conniving man. We thought Jacob was a conniving man. Laban is sevenfold more. And so he's shifting and he's moving. And uh, on the way, Jacob, though, has like a Damascus Road experience. He has a personal encounter with God, and it's transformative. It, it starts the work of, of sanctification, if you will thinking from a New Testament principle, in his life. He's radically reoriented in his outlook. See, God had predetermined to have a relationship with Jacob. It had been in the prophecy back when his mother was carrying him in the womb. But up to this point, Jacob is really not aware of God's intention to adopt him like he had adopted his father Isaac and Abraham. And so this moment here is the moment when God's presence becomes very real. God's presence was always there, but it's like his blinders were lifted, and suddenly he's aware of his God, who is the true and living God. I don't know how you have ever had this experience before. I've had it more times that I could you know, count where I'll walk into a room, and someone's in the room, and then they move, and I'm like, what? I just jump right out of my skin. You know, have you ever had that experience? Well, it's kind of like what's happening here with, with Jacob. God has been there, but all of a sudden, Jacob is suddenly aware that he's there. You know, God is in every room of our lives. God is always there. But until He reveals His presence to us, we're utterly blind to His existence. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul retells this truth. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And until the Spirit enters, until we are born again… We cannot see the rule of God. We cannot see the kingdom of God. We don't have eternal life. 
And so, we are profoundly ungodly in our orientation. We're, we may be good people, but we're ungodly in the sense that God is not a part of our thinking one way or another. We live life as if God doesn't exist, and our whole orientation will be to maximize our glory and not God's glory. How does this orientation take place? It is a divine mystery. And I, I, I just shared an example from my father. I remember as a boy hearing my father give his testimony, but his eyes were, were opened, and he suddenly realized the reality of God. He had grown up in a, in, a, in a saved and a believing home, and he had at one point followed his older sister to the front to pray with the pastor to ask Jesus to be his Savior. But he said it wasn't until later in his teenage years when he heard a message from a, a visiting evangelist who was speaking about Judas, and the story of Judas impacted my father profoundly because the point was Judas had been with Jesus but didn't even know who he was. And my father sitting there, I'm like, I'm around Jesus, I'm hearing Jesus, but I don't even really know him on a personal level. And in that moment, the Spirit opened his heart and eyes, and he was born again. He was radically reoriented. And so Jacob is in a similar way. He's aware of God, but he's not been personally affected by God. So, this morning, the big theme, the big idea here is that a personal encounter with God's presence is a transforming moment. So, there is here truth for believers as well. We can be transformed, and we can realize that we've been transformed, but we, we have to realize that we're still now in progress. There's transformation still happening, and the greater the awareness of God's presence in our moment-to-moment lives, the greater the potential for transformation of our hearts until we become the image of Christ Himself. This is a progressive thing through all of our lives. So, I want us to see that there are principles here for believers, but the, the, the storyline lends itself to that initial moment of conversion that takes place And so, we see Jacob here, and one wants to see, first of all, that a relationship with God is initiated by his self-revelation. It's initiated, and the first few verses show us this. It's initiated by his self-revelation. Maybe you've never thought of it this way, but Christianity, and I stole my own thunder in Sunday school… But Christianity is a revealed religion. In other words, it's not orienting itself in man. It's oriented in God, and what He tells us, what He chooses to tell us, is what we know about Him. If God had not taken the initiative to reveal Himself to us, we wouldn't know that there was a personal God who created this world. I mean, we might have this kind of vague, you know, supreme being concept, but we wouldn't know anything of His personal nature and his, the tenderness of His heart towards sinners unless He told us about Himself and revealed Himself. And this is something that's significantly different about Christianity above all religions. All other religions orientate themselves from the man and what we think God is like. 
God is not what we think God is. God is what He tells us He is. And it's important for us to grasp this concept. And so, unless God reveals Himself to us in a personal way, we're utterly lost to know Him really in an intimate way. But I want us to notice several aspects here in this text about how this tends to occur. There is some principles that can be seen here. And the first is how this comes about is that God tends to use ordinary means. He tends to use ordinary means. Now, in verses 10 through 11, Jacob is on this journey towards Haran. He stops for a night's sleep. He, he, he goes to sleep. Part of the way, he puts his head under, excuse me, on top of a rock. He puts a rock under his head like a pillow, as our translations tell us. But a, a more literal reading of that text is that he, it's like he, he put a stone at his head place. That's kind of more the, the Hebrew rendering. And that's a little bit harder for us to visualize maybe, but unless we think of it as like a, a headboard. You know, on our bed, we, we have a headboard typically. Some people don't, but that's their choice. But a headboard there, the idea is having a protection. So, he picked a particularly large rock, and he got himself in next to it, and, he, and so he's a little bit protected there. He's kind of like sleeping with his back to the wall idea. I, I've always been curious of how the flannel graph, you know, show him, you know, underneath with the heavy rock. I, I, I can't sleep on a rock. And, uh, you know, well, maybe he could, but I think this, the literal ren- rendering uh, makes a little bit more sense here. But notice that we're not told exactly where he stayed the night, at least not at this point. A little bit later we read that it was near a city called Luz, and that it was actually, a, maybe we didn't, can't see this from the text, but to, the scholars tell us that Luz was a very significant Canaanite city, okay? But here, Moses, under divine inspiration, says, oh, it was a certain place, it was just a certain place. And, and in other words, it was like, it was an ordinary place. It was, you know, just any traveling stop along the way. And the significance of this is that God does use ordinary means, and they become extraordinary, though, when God enters into them. And it, you know, it's, it's really important for us to realize this truth that God uses ordinary things like a Gideon. Just someone out threshing wheat. God uses ordinary places, Honesdale. He uses ordinary people like yourselves. <laughs> Don't take offense. You're all wonderful people, but you're ordinary. We're all ordinary. But God uses these things, and He can do extraordinary things through them if He so chooses. And so, we live in a, a world, though, that tells us that the next big thing is where it's at. You know, it's more fun, though, to be at where it's flashing, glitzy, and it's all exciting. But that's not what God does. He uses ordinary things, and He does extraordinary things through them. And I use the word ordinary means on purpose because it's a term that's 
a bit historical theologically. Because God, in His grace of ministry to us, He uses the normal patterns of revelation through the Word of God. He, he, he gathers us together as people in a congregational setting, and He imparts to us spiritual understanding through normal means of like the basic reading of the Scriptures and having them unfolded for us. These are means that God uses, and we shouldn't despise them, even though they're commonplace and, quote, ordinary. You know, these ordinary experiences don't seem to be off the chart, but they're, it's, it's really, it's the steady compounding over years that we look back and say, wow, God did an extraordinary work in my life, and He did it through some of these normal means, but they're extraordinary when we understand God through the Scriptures. But you know, this ordinary becomes extraordinary because it's not something that we do, it's something that God does in us. And God takes the initiative, verses 12 to 13. Jacob surprises Jacob here with a dream. And God's revelation here is it's not something that Jacob works up himself. He I mean, he, whoever creates their own dream, I would love to be able to create my own dream, but dreams just happen, and I can't be in control over those things. But the dream here has three parts. There's a stairway touching heaven in verses 12 to 13. Let's just read it again for our, for our, our, our visual appreciation. In verses 12 to 13, it says, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman. Oh, wait, I'm on the wrong chapter. It would help if I was in the right chapter. Chapter 28, verse 12 to 13. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were sending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and then said. And so what he sees here is a stairway touching heaven and earth. He sees angels ascending and descending upon it. But at the top of the staircase, he sees, he sees the Lord. He sees Jehovah. And so there's a kind of a, it's hard for us to visualize that it's sometimes called Jacob's ladder. But the, the, the word choice of ladder, you might even have a footnote in your Bible that says more like staircase. It's like, um, but the impression that Jacob, you know how dreams are, anything can happen in a dream. But the impression of, that was happening in Jacob's heart as he's seeing this ladder, it's like, it's, it's like descending. It's like coming from, it's starting originally from heaven, it's coming down to earth. It's like a descending escalator, if you will. And the, and, and the uh, angels of God ascending and descending on this. But the orientation and the beginning place is not earth to heaven, but from heaven to, to earth. And that's a significant a significant revelation. And the Lord, He's standing there. He's master of it all. He's looking down. And so, this ordinary place, it's like He's sitting here, he's, he's, he's taking this all in as He's sleeping. He's suddenly realizing this is no ordinary place. There's like an axis here between heaven and earth. And, and the importance of it seeing that, that He's seeing that this is starting in heaven and going to earth throughout the centuries. 
We've all been building towers that reach into heaven. But we can only start at the foundational earth level. And, and, and man has been doing that since centuries ago at the Tower of Babel, trying to build a staircase to heaven. And, but it doesn't start there. It starts in, in heaven and works comes down towards us. So there's an initiative here that's being communicated in this dream. I know that there is an important here that, that I'm probably failing to be able to communicate. But there's, 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 a, there's an initiative from God that has to take place or else we will be hopelessly lost. You know, God has progressively been revealing Himself throughout the centuries. I mean, He, he instructed the Israelites to… Now, how do you get to God, right? But He's been teaching the Israelites that you, you can't get there on your own. You have to have a temple that is the bridge that, that, that mediates you and God. The prophets were coming and communicating God's will, but at these last days, what has God sent to us? He sent His own Son. His Son did not originate as a bloodline from, from Joseph and Mary. It came originating from heaven and descended to us. And boy, I, I, I'm just… I want to just go and teach Sunday school again, but, but those who were in my Sunday school class, you know, we've been looking at John chapter 3, and we've been looking at Nathaniel. Nathaniel is like hearing from Jesus. Jesus says to Nathaniel, hey, you believe that I'm the Messiah? Hey, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon me. And then in chapter 2, he says, to the temple people, to the, the leadership in the temple, he says, hey, you like this temple? Guess what? I'm going to destroy it in three days. I'm going to destroy it, and in three days, I'm going to bring it back up again. But he was talking about himself. And then he tells Nicodemus, hey, you, you know, you can't be born from this earth. You've got to be born from him who is above all. You've got to be born again from above. You see, I'm struggling here. But it's just like, it's overwhelming. Jesus is saying, look, you can't be born from this earth level. You've got to be born first in heaven before you can reach heaven. God takes the initiative here. And Jesus is saying, look, forget the ladder that, Jake, that Jacob saw. I am the ladder. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You have to see that. You have to be born again. The Spirit of God has to teach you. And it has to come from heaven. I can't argue you into heaven. The Spirit of God has to open your heart. This is what Jesus is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless somebody is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you've got to be born at the top of the staircase. You can't be born at the bottom. You've got to be born from above. And so I want us to see here in this, 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 this dream here that, that God's taking the initiative here. But there is a clear communication that comes to us. Verses 13, the latter part there, and down to verse 15. God is so clear in His communication to Jacob. He says, it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, 
the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. There's clarity. I am the God who sustained them, and I am going to be yours. The land in which you lie, I will give you into your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I'm done what I've promised to you. And there is such grace in this communication. Jacob is a filthy sinner. He doesn't deserve any of this. God adopted Abraham, Isaac, and now he's doing the unthinkable. He's, he's intending to adopt Jacob as his very own son and take care of him. And so he's going to bless him. And God is in the, in the grandest scheme of things. Here's, he's blessing Jacob with a personal relationship with him. This is special. And you know what? When God communicates, he's clear. What is the greatest communication of the clarity of a relationship with God? Isn't it not John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Like that is the greatest, clearest communication of intention to have a relationship that you could ever think of. No wonder it's at the football games. It's clear but yet faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And God moves in hearts, and He takes these simple truths of clear truths and creates life within. Now, Jacob can't manipulate this from God, and neither can we. We can't manipulate eternal life from God. And so, God here tells him of his intention to have a personal relationship with him, Yet God promises as well to be with him and to take care of him. And God is communicating to Jacob that you're not to live by, by sight, but you're to live by faith in these promises that I'm declaring to you. This is what your guiding point. This is where you're going to be focusing your attention on over the 20 years of your exile. You're going to be leaving the promised land. You're going to be going to Laban. Focus on these promises that I will be with you and I will not forsake you. God is very clear here. And so he's promising his presence to him. I think it's important for us to understand that we, as believers even, we can lose sight of the presence of God. That he is, and, and when we lose sight of that, it doesn't mean that God has left. It's that our mind is, is misshapen in our thoughts, and we're, we're wandering in our hearts away from Him, and we're potentially going to go through some carnage internally in our souls because He has promised never to leave us. And so, by God's grace, He, he allows some of these circumstances to unfold, to, to work in our hearts to produce faith and to produce perseverance and character and hope. And this is going to happen in the life of Jacob. So I hope you can see what's going on here. The second part of this is the more the response side. You have the initiation here of God moving towards Jacob. Now we see relationship with God 
is evidenced by a faithful, grateful response. There's a responsiveness in verses 16 to 22. He, he wakes up. He's like he, 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 he's been sleeping this whole time, and now he wakes up, and he's, he's, he's man, I, I, had a, I had this encounter with God. It's a personal encounter. God's done something. He may, may not be able to articulate it very well, but he, he understands that something has clearly happened. And so, if I, if I may put this into a New Testament perspective, if a person like Jacob has been born again, at least there's a life starting to take place there because of that, there's going to be a fundamental shift now in the awareness of who they are, and there's going to be a reorientation of the priorities of his life. And so, we get to see some of this response to what God has initiated. And so, it's important for us to understand that dynamic, that, that what God has actually done will create response. How do we know if someone says, hey, I've had an encounter with God? We know it by the fruits that are produced. And so, the first is that, that God here in this, the reality of this is that God shines a light on His darkness, and He's suddenly aware that He is dark. He's got some sin in His life. He's, he's been in a position of encounter with God in verses 16 to 17. Jacob then awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was, what's that next word? He was, he was frightened. He was, he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He's suddenly so full of awe, he's seeing the staircase that's coming down to him from heaven, and he's seeing God at the very top, and he's marveling, hey, I could have died. I saw God. I could have died. He's suddenly seeing, like Isaiah did, back in Isaiah chapter 6, when he was in the throne room of God, it's like he's crying out, woe is me, for I am undone, and I'm in the midst of a people of an unclean lips. He's suddenly aware of his, his of, of, and he's afraid. Think about in the New Testament. Those of you might say, well, yeah, those are, New Test- those are Old Testament examples. What about the New Testament in our day? Well, John the Apostle had a revelation of Jesus Christ and what happened to him in the book of Revelation. He fell down as if he were dead. I still remember that illustration from Aaron Coffey when he was here with us. You remember the illustration? He's moving around at night, and he flips the switch, and this room is filled with cockroaches. The light exposed the realities of the heart, and this is what's going on here. He's like, I've seen the living God, and actually, and he's overwhelmed. He's afraid. So, when God shows us His glory, we instantly see our own impurities. That is a response that comes from a true encounter. We suddenly realize that we are sinful and we need sanctification. We need to grow to be like Him. Secondly, God moves us to publicly testify. Verses 18 to 19. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured it oil on the top of it. 
and he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And Jacob here, he, he responds with the tenderness of heart. What he does, what he does is he builds an Ebenezer. He builds a, a memorial stone to the occasion. And so this pillar becomes a witness that something has happened here. And what does he do? He, he pours, do you notice where he pours the oil? He doesn't pour it on the base of it. He pours it at the top of it. A signal that he realizes that it's from the top down, not the bottom up. He sees clearly that this is something God has done. And it causes him to act. He actually builds something. He does something here to demonstrate and to show that he has this, this, this act doesn't make him a believer. It's evidence that he has had a, a, a personal encounter with God. Now, what is the most natural memorial that we can raise up to show the world that we have been born again? Is it not baptism? And, and, and just, you know, a week or so, we're going to have a baptism service, and then there's one going to happen in the new year as well. But baptism is like raising a pillar. It's a statement to all who are there to witness and see, hey, something has happened here in this person. There is a grateful, faithful response because of what God has done. And a faithful response to Jesus making you born again is to follow Him and to follow Him through the waters of baptism as a testimony that a change has taken place in your hearts. Notice He set up this memorial. What did He call it? Bethel, which is house of God. I mean, you stop and think about that. We are the house of God, right? Are we not the house of God if the Spirit is dwelling within us? <laughs> and that's, that's what baptism signifies, that we are now Bethel. We are the house of God. The Holy Spirit is now dwelling within us. We are not our own, but we're bought with a price. And so we're going to glorify God in our bodies and our spirit, which are His. Just a word about infant baptism, because I've I got to say it. If you've been baptized in an infant, consider whether the memorial testifies in the same way. Baptism is not your entry point into a relationship with God. It is the expression that you have a relationship with God. There's another response here at the last here that demonstrates that Jacob's life orientation is starting to change. Like there's something there that's changed. And so God reorientates, you know, there's, there's a sense in which it, God moves us to do public testimony. There's a sense in which God then reorientates the priorities of our life. Verse 20 and 21, uh, he says, it says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and nothing excuse me, and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house, 
and all that you have given me, I will give a full tithe to you. This is one of the longest vows in the Old Testament, but it reveals Jacob's heart. He's committing his life to live with Jehovah as his God. And this is a demonstration of the orientation of his life. There's a commitment. I, don't, I think we, we misunderstand what a vow does and signifies in an Old Testament mindset. But what a vow does is a statement of a commitment to a continued relationship with God even after you've been delivered from your affliction. Jacob is anticipating affliction coming his way. But he's making a vow believing that God is going to keep him through it, but the vow is a statement that says, hey, when this affliction has passed, I'm still going to keep following you. It's a commitment to relationship with God. It's not passing in the night. It's commitment to follow Christ with our whole life. I've witnessed people make bold claims that they're going to follow God when they're in trouble, but when the trouble's over, they disappear. Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's that the, they make a, a vow that they're going, to, they're going to renew relationship with God, but when that, if God will do this, but what if God doesn't do it the way you think? Are you still committed? The reality is, is that when we, 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 we make a life commitment, it has to be a commitment of faith, believing, and knowing that God will keep His Word. Look carefully at what Jacob vows. He, he, he commits himself to a full tithe. What does it mean to commit yourself to a full tithe? Well, what it means is that he intends not just to give once in a while, but he intends to give back regularly to God who provides everything he has. Now, I could hang up here and preach a whole sermon on giving, but I'd miss the point. This is a very, very significant decision by Jacob, because at heart, Jacob, he's a deceiver He's a clutcher. He's greedy. He doesn't want to let go. All of a sudden, he's moved from being a grasper over here, and on this encounter, now he's becoming a giver. The orientation of life has changed. But this is how it is when a person has had, had a real encounter with God. The liar, who is profoundly known as a liar suddenly becomes a truth-teller, a person who, who is immoral suddenly says, hey, God is real. I'm going to be moral. I'm going to follow what Jesus tells me to do. A person who is a thief suddenly becomes a giver, like a, a, a benevolent person. They become like Zac, Zacchaeus, who, who when confronted with Jesus, had a real encounter with Jesus, and how we know that is he repaid everything that he had stolen from everyone. Double. 
That's real. Think of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a man, some of us are maybe not old enough to remember who he was. I have to reach back a little bit. But prior to his salvation, he was Nixon's hatchet man. He was into, like, destroying the character and credibility of the opposition. As soon as he became a believer, he turned into a healer in helping other people rehabilitate their lives. Prison Fellowship is an example of a ministry he started, a restorer of souls, not a destroyer of souls. You see the difference? There's a radical reorientation of who we are when we profess faith in Jesus Christ. And a personal encounter with God's presence is always a transforming moment. The question is, have you been born from above? I want to invite you this morning. I want to invite you if you're here and you're, you, maybe this is just all of a sudden, boom. This makes sense. That's not me talking. That's the Holy Spirit talking to your heart. Thank Him. Respond to Him. Acknowledge the reorientation of your life and embrace it by faith. Jesus Christ came to forgive sinners. Is this suddenly real in your life? Thank Him for that. In your own heart. And I think it's important for us that we not imagine even that it is our response here that's a part of this. The initiation starts with God. There is response. Yes, there is. But there's not response without initiation. If we're not careful, that can really get in the way. I remember a professor in seminary sharing with his class a moment that he had had with his children. You know, this is so simple that even children can understand it. Seminary professor, he was saying to his children, he said, how could you get me up the staircase? How, how, could, how could you get up the staircase without touching any of the stairs? Because clearly it's not of your works, but of His. How do you, how do you get up the stairs? And so he's telling this to children, and one, one child said, you know, uh, you know maybe, maybe we could build a scaffold, Daddy. We could kind of like, kind of get up there and kind of, kind of… Another child said, maybe if I took a rope and I shot it up with an arrow, and we hung it over top of the, the banister, we could like pull ourselves up there and we would avoid any of the stairs. It was the youngest child who said, Daddy, what if you carried me up? What if you carried me up? I wouldn't have to touch any of those stairs. What a beautiful picture. Jesus at the top of the staircase, becoming the bridge, the vehicle by which He lifts us and carries us up to be with Himself in heaven. That is the gospel. It is not by works which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us. And evidence of this encounter 
the lifter of the eyes, the, the blinders coming off, will be a repentance. There will be response. There will be a following. There will be a changing. But what if we've already repented of our sin? What if, what if, what if we lag? What if we, we fall behind? Well, we are to keep doing the ordinary means. We're to repent of our distractedness. We've gotten our eyes focused on the things of this world. We turn our hearts back to Him. He's never left us. He's not going to forsake us. He's still there. Continue to put confidence in the means by which He has expressed how He will communicate with His people. He's given us prayer. He's given us the Word of God through His beloved apostles. We have the preaching of the Word. We have singing of truths that increase the awareness of God. We have the Lord's table that we come to. We have the fellowship of the saints. All of these things are ordinary means by which we understand and know God. Don't grow weary in well-doing. In due season, we shall reap if we faint not. 